Hello, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm Laurel Thompson, and today we're going to do an episode called Tour Stories, which a podcast listener named Jason recommended um, back early last year, actually. It's been almost a year for me to get to this one, but uh, that's okay because I've gathered a few more tour stories since then, and I have Dan Frechette joining me today with some of his awesome tour stories, and we're going to share some together, and then I'm going to have a few people coming here and there, some pre-recorded little vignettes of um, some other folks' tour stories, and I thought it was a great opportunity for me to introduce some non-violinist musician friends of mine and uh, some of their tour stories. So I hope you enjoy. So I'm going to have some themes that are going to flow through this, and the first theme is engaging the unexpected. And I'm going to turn it over first to Dan, and he has a story that happened uh, quite a few years ago, I believe, back in Winnipeg when he lived there. And um, yeah, why don't you uh, tell your Northern Hotel story? Well, yeah. Um, well, what happened was I had a gig that was booked because I owed a debt, uh, which is kind of funny, but um, there was an album that I'd made called Motel 75 in 2000, and um, we'd played the Winnipeg Folk Festival, the band I was in, and we'd sold, you know, small amount of copies and stuff and and I thought the whole time that the album actually was free because we recorded it at this place where there's like a you know kind of a student school you know kids learning how to do engineering and all that so I just thought okay it was free and I and then about five months after that I got this call saying that there was this one guy that had done some extra mixing and you know fixing up and spending his time and making the recording what it was and I, I didn't even realize it and so he says so he says at $900 that we owe uh, because of the time he spent so I just thought okay that's fine that's fair and then I thought well I'm looking at my calendar and I'm going I don't see any gigs coming up where I was going to make money like that um, so I was kind of nervous about it and I just thought okay it'll be a debt that'll take you know six seven eight months to pay back and all of a sudden I get this phone call about maybe a three weeks later and he says that he'd come up with an idea for us to make all the money that we owed him in one night <laughs> and I said that, that sounds pretty awesome um what is it and he says well there's this place called the northern hotel and and I thought maybe it would be way north of Winnipeg up in Thompson or you know way the heck up north they'd have to northern. drive eight, eight hours in the cars and like I've done in the past but it sure. turned out that it was just in Winnipeg and I never heard of the place and I thought, okay, sure, they're going to pay 900 bucks. And the guy says, yeah. So we all met there. Um, so your beer band. Yeah, the band. Like I was in a mm -hmm. band called Motel 75. And so the band wound up, you know, saying, sure, let's do it. It was around Christmas time. It was like the, pretty much towards the end of December before Christmas. And um, we just all got in our cars, our separate cars and drove down. And uh, I'd borrowed my mom's car and I remember I was down there and I was kind of freaked out because there was a lot of broken glass all along the road. <laughs> so I was getting a little nervous about that, thinking I was going to have a flat tire in my mom's car in the snow, Middle minus 20. Winter. <laughs> and so um, anyway, I wound up parking a few blocks away and walking down with my acoustic. And, and then I got there and I realized that the place actually was at pretty much the worst most crime-ridden corner of Winnipeg. It was one of the more dangerous places. There's like knifings there, muggings, um, beatings, 
constantly. And tell people just because they, they might not be aware of where Winnipeg is exactly. Well, Winnipeg is 10 hours north of Minneapolis, and it's in, in, the, Canada. in the center of Canada. Yeah, it's just north of the border. It's a pretty big town. Like, there's about 800,000 people there. And quite a music scene, too. Like, it's got a great music scene. And lots and lots of bands, but not that many places to play. So that's kind of where it was funny to <laughs> hear about this random venue I'd never heard of. And so I've got, you know, I'm excited to go and make all this kind of money in such a short time. When I walked in the venue, I was completely, absolutely freaked out. Because first thing I saw, next to like about maybe eight or eight or ten bouncers that were really big guys. <laughs> um, I saw a whole bunch of people fighting when I walked in, like uh, women punching out guys. The guys were falling down on the ground. Um, they were getting up and like yelling and it was really scary. I was like, I can't believe it. We have to play this gig. I talked to the guy who had been there already, um, the guy that we owed money to and he was sitting there and I'm just like, are you sure we're going to have to do this gig? And uh, he said, yeah, it's like, it's booked. So, I mean, you're, you, you know, if they find out there's no entertainment tonight, they're going to freak out. So I said, okay. Sounds like they're already freaking out. I said, who's going to freak out? And they said, well, the, uh, the guy that booked us, as well as the audience that was there, because they were all wanting to drink and party and really, really go, get gone, you know. So I just mm -hmm. said, okay, well, I better get the band together. And so shortly the other band members started coming in and, they were all looking, walking in and seeing their eyes wide open, going, whoa, this is going to be one of those gigs. So anyway, we wound up getting on stage after uh, no sound check. Like we just thought we're not going to do that because these folks were very irate, you know, to put it. You know, they were just like a really rough crowd. And um, it, it was just one of those places where you don't take a lot of breaks between songs. Um you shouldn't do that. You should just do a medley, you know, because what I kept noticing was um, the first set, I did a couple little breaks, you know, because we were really on stage giving her, you know, because we really wanted to get this crowd going. And every single time I stopped, there would be like people walking, storming the stage, basically, mm -hmm. either to uh, beat us up, seriously, <laughs> like, or to yell at us or some kind of negative thing. As long as we were playing, they just all hung around and fought with each other in the audience. Nice. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, let's just do, um, let's, I told the guys in between a song, I just turned around and looked at the drummer and said, let's just play a whole bunch of tunes in a row. And at that point, some guy came up to the stage and he's like, hey man, do you know any Charlie Major? And he's like, literally probably six foot nine, seven feet tall, huge guy, this guy, and he was an Indian guy. And, um, I remember the stage was probably like about maybe two or three feet off the ground. And I remember looking at him and it was almost like he was eye to eye with me. It was mm -hmm. that freaky. Super intimidating. Like super intimidating guy. And I said, uh, sorry, I actually don't know any Charlie Major. And that was when his face turned like really dark purple. And he's like, you don't know no Charlie Major. And he's just like really pissed off. <laughs> and then I saw him coming to get on stage. And then I saw these bouncers that I saw when I'd come in. I hadn't seen them since. They were just kind of letting all the fights happen. And all of a sudden, these three bouncers come out of nowhere. And one guy grabbed one guy. You know how when you go fishing and you catch a fish, you grab it around the gills. And then the fish kind of gets all sort of, you know, <laughs> almost gets 
what, goes limp. And, limp, yeah, and just just really uh, incapacitated. Can't can't move. So that's what they did with the guy, and then they they grabbed them. Pressure points. They grabbed them and pulled them out of there and ram. This guy is like probably about three hundred pounds. You know, it took like two or three of these big guys to get him out of there, and that's when I turned around and I just said, you know, let's just play you know, a, a 25 minute medley. So that's what we did. We just played, we wound up playing your cheating heart probably like five or six times that night. <laughs> we played, um, a lot of CCR. Like they actually liked that. Like whenever we played mm-hmm. CCR, it was great. So we did born on the bio. That was like a 20 minute version of the song. Until, so clear, <laughs> a cl- CCR clearance, clear water revival. Credence, right? clear water revival. Credence, yeah. Sorry. And, uh, you know, brown eyed girl, like, you yeah, know, Morrison, that's, yeah. you, you know, in that place like that, it worked well. It's just really interesting how, you know, you're there and you're, you're, you're standing there and you're going, we can all get killed tonight. Cause there were people, <laughs> I found out later that there'd been people killed in that place. And, yeah. you know, so, um, that was always, I always mention that on stage, that story, a much shorter version of it. But I tell that story, uh, usually at house concerts now, you know, and, I'll say that story and say, thanks for being such a great audience after that story. Because <laughs> that's the worst. That was the worst gig of my career. I haven't had a worse gig than that yet. And I hope I don't ever have a worse gig than that because I'll probably die. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you were pretty much an original music band, right? Yeah, exactly. You were doing your own music and a little bit of from you know stuff from other bandmates, right? And, and so, you know, sort of showing that... You know, you kind of have to be on top of things and suss out the scene. Well, we because changed there, our gears. I mean, it totally. wouldn't have worked, right? Like, you probably would have been killed if you did we, your own songs that they didn't know. We went into whatever they wanted. And then, of course, halfway through, I thought I'd go look around for the guy who had booked us. And the guy who we owed the money to wound up smiling at me and saying, yeah, I already got paid. <laughs> so he'd already taken care of it. He already went to, to get before, his money. before we, you know, so that night we all went home with no money, but... And no CD sales, no nothing, no good feeling inside. Just really feeling like, you know, like we gave a a five-hour show. Wow. Like we played from 9 o'clock right until, what was it, like almost 2.30 in the morning. We we wanted to stop, but they told us that we had to keep going until the crowd was out of there. Uh, It was a really tough night. So anyway, the Northern Hotel in Winnipeg. Don't play there. So now we're going to go over to a little interview I did with Sam from Bosco's Brood about a week ago. And he's got two short tour stories of um, some really kind of unusual situations he got himself into in Portland. Um, Pretty much just showing up to clubs and realizing that what he expected was very unexpected. And we'll be back with more stories in a minute. Hello, Sam, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. How's it going? Pretty good, Laurel. Everything's going real well. I hope you've enjoyed your holidays. I have. It's been nice to have a little break from students and actually a little break from shows as well for, I guess, about a week at least. <laughs> but um, yeah, tell us about your music and uh, what, what do you play? Well, um, I think like a lot of musicians, my music has uh, evolved through the years. Uh, initially when uh, I got started with Bosco's Brood, which is the name of the musical act. Mm-hmm. It started off as a band uh, back in about mm, 2007, 2008, and we were doing a lot of experimental kind of music along the lines of what you might hear with King Crimson or Emerson Lake and Palmer and, you know, these 
very you know, sort of rock, art rock, uh, yes genre, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as the years have gone by, um, you know, opportunities to, to play places were, um, were wavering. Uh, the band sort of evolved into more of a experimental acoustic kind of framework, and, and eventually uh, I started to do a lot more solo work because I wrote all of the material. Uh, and so consequently, it went from being that sort of that art rock sound uh, to a more um, passive uh, experimental uh, acoustic folk, if you will, if, if such a genre exists. Uh, and, um, and so it's been, a, it's been an enjoyable uh, involvement, and I kept the name Bosco's Brood even as a performer because, uh, well, part of it because I just was too lazy to change the website. <laughs> <laughs> but the other part was because it was more identifiable with the sound that uh, was part of the origins of the, of the group. Sure, and yeah, once you find a, a band name... I mean, it's so it's so hard to find a band name. You just want to keep keep one if you find one. <laughs> just uh, keep it. People just call me Bosco, and I just mm-hmm. run with it. Yeah. Well, and what's nice about that name? It doesn't really pigeonhole you. As is, you know, when I hear it, I'm not thinking, oh, it's obviously this genre. You know. So I like those kind of names personally because I like to jump around. It sounds like you do too. I do indeed. Yeah. So, um, so tell us where you're based and where you where you've toured to, and then we'll jump into a tour story. Sure. Um, actually, I'm based kind of two spots. A little bit of a uh, characteristic of my dual identity, if you will. Um, I'm based in one part out of the Turlock Modesto area, which is in Central California, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm also I also consider Monterey to be my base as well, in part because I have residences in both in both areas, uh, so um, I don't know. I suppose if we can combine that, I'm, I'm from Central California. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, uh, so um, it's given me some opportunities. Uh, the, the band got started in, in the area of the Central Valley, and so uh, most of our work was done in that area, Stanislaus County or Sacramento Valley, and that general area. But once I established a residence out here in Monterey, my more uh, solo side, if you will, started to become uh, more apparent. Uh, and I started to play a lot of the uh, local venues in Monterey, Carmel, and in this region as well. Uh, so it's, um, it's really exp- I've expanded in, in that respect. And uh, certainly touring has been part of that. Uh, part of that existence uh, in the past, at least with this band, with the past seven to, to eight years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tours themselves, I think as most musicians have gone on tours, have always run into some quirky things. And not yeah. necessarily bad ones, but entertaining ones. Yeah. And do you have a particular story that kind of stands out in your mind? <laughs> well, um, in 2009, uh, Bosco's Breed the Band uh, was doing a tour in the Pacific Northwest. That's where we centered most of that tour. Uh, and it's uh, setting a tour there, as a lot of musicians know, it's uh, a lot of logistics that are involved. Uh, you have to have a lot of patience. And there's a lot of back and forth uh, in terms of where and when you're going to play. Right. Uh, and so in setting a lot of that up, uh, one of the bookers in the Portland, Oregon, Oregon area that I was working with 
set us up to play with an app uh, that he said was was very very popular. Okay. Uh, and we always want to get like a local band that's popular here and out of town. It really yeah. does help with the draw. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, so you know when you're dealing with a mess of, of bookers, you look at it and say, "Oh great, we got a good local band that we're going to be either opening or, or closing for." Uh, and then you go on to the next spot and you arrange that trip. So I didn't really think much of it, mm-hmm. other than the usual. Uh, he probably told me the name and I couldn't remember. All I knew was he said this group is popular and we're going to get a good draw and people are really going to get excited. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, okay, great. That's super. So when we engaged in the tour, Portland was probably fourth or fifth down the line. and So we come pulling into Portland, Oregon and uh, eventually make our way over to uh, to the club where we're playing. And when we got there, uh, the performance room was adjacent to where the bar was, and so we really couldn't see inside the performance room. Um, and But we could hear the music. I mean, the, the quote-unquote band uh, was already starting in by the time that we arrived, and we could hear the pounding of the music, and people, you know, were just... just really have it look like sound like they were just having this great time <laughs> and of course you know we so we thought we'd have a few drinks and chat and we were excited they oh, great boy you've got a really good band uh, you know for us to follow here um and so finally i decided well these guys sound pretty good uh so i thought i'd take a peek in the in the room to, to just, just kind of catch a glimpse of their act before sure. we got started so i look in there <laughs> these panties, these women's panties <laughs> that are off to the side of the stage where Uh-oh. I can see, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is quite a crowd. <laughs> and, then I, and then I saw why all of that was happening. Oh, no. Um, it, was, it was a strip show oh, that no. was going on. <laughs> the quote-unquote band was, I mean, they had a name, but we thought that was the name of a, of a music band. Sure. And it turned out that they were a... They were a, a um, a group of young women who uh, were strippers, and uh, they were actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, the crowd's going crazy. And, and, and you know, my, my bandmates are still at the bar. So when I got back, they had no idea. And I looked back, and I told them, I said, uh, listen, guys, I, I need to tell you that uh, um, this is going to be a tough act to follow. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> We're really gonna have to be like really great, and they're looking at me like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And I said, "Go take a look for yourself." Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> so, so sure enough, you know, we get in there, and the thankfully there were still a lot of people left after the girls quit. That was my uh, question. And, yeah. <laughs> And the girls themselves actually were very, very kind. Some of them stayed to hear us and generously brought us drinks. Uh, they should have that because they actually made a lot more money than we did. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm and sure. And that, um, that was our night following the first time ever that I ever followed the strip act. Wow. That would be a, yeah, <laughs> like you said, that'd be a really hard act to follow. Um isn't that interesting? Yeah, I know Portland, it, it has a big strip thing. I don't know what that's all about, but um, I've been, you know, when I've been there, there's, I don't remember which part of town because I haven't purposely tried to go there, but. 
<laughs> it's like, wow, there's a lot of strip clubs well, here. This is caught, interesting. They caught us off guard. <laughs> yeah, no, you would never know if they have this name and you're like, oh, it's a band. Cool. Wow. Yeah. So um, I think you mentioned you had another story too that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that story um, took place in Southern Oregon, in Ashland. Oh, yeah. And, and in that experience, I was performing as a solo artist. Um, I went down to this small cavern uh, to play, uh, and it was I was billed at the late night hour. And uh, so there I was doing my songs, and there was a nice little crowd there. And, and all of a sudden, in the in the second set, uh, I did two sets that night. Um, here I am playing my songs, and I noticed that there are more and more people kind of crowding around. I'm thinking, oh, great, this is terrific. And they're kind of crowding around part of the staging area, and it turned out that they had come to see. <laughs> you got to be really pumped. You're going to have to have, uh, you can't have thin skin and be a musician. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it turned out that. Right off to my right, off the stage behind the speakers where I couldn't see, uh, was a, a body painting a booth that was set up. Okay. And these young women were were disrobing, completely disrobing, and getting their bodies painted. And this is what was drawing the crowd. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> and it turned out that the woman who was doing the body painting uh, was the co-owner of the club. Huh. This is like her side business, I guess. And only in Ashland, I guess. <laughs> in, in Ashland. Or yeah, the West Coast like, anyway. That sounds like a West Coast <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I dutifully continued to play my set. Uh, and sort of kicked up sort of kicked up my uh, my selections uh, so that way I could at least draw some attention. I guess. Yeah, that must have again been a really hard act to I guess um co-perform with um well yeah. in that case i wasn't following the act in that case i was actually competing with the act yeah exactly <laughs> so how i how long did it take for them to paint a body i mean it's not your typical face painting booth or anything well uh that's a good question because i was performing at the time and um i remember that it didn't seem not to take long i guess it depended on how much they wanted painted there you go. Uh, because they started to dance to some like I mean, I really, you know, I was just playing my music and they started to dance to it. And some of them, I guess, didn't want their bodies painted as much as others. So after a few minutes, they were dancing and I kind of felt like I was back in Portland. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> in Oregon, just so people know, Oregon also has a more conservative side. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does indeed. And, um, I have to say that those kinds of challenges uh, really kind of test your concentration level as a musician. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that, and that's, that's the thing, right? I mean, it's like that's the extreme of, of trying to stay focused. But, I mean, you know, people that are, you know, arms crossed over their stomach looking like, like, why are you here? You obviously aren't enjoying yourself to, the, to this, you know. It's, it's hard out there for a musician. You know. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, one of the acts that had come a week before I did it up in Ashland was a, a duo called Dirty, Dirty Cello. Oh, yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've seen them before, and, yeah. and they, were, they were excellent. I mean, it was it's a, a cellist who's yeah, they're great. outstanding. And, and they do a lot of very, very interesting uh, classics. Uh, 
And I was thinking to myself, Chad, I wonder how they dealt with this. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, their music is very, uh, it's, it's very much a listening kind of um, entertainment. And um, one of the days I'm going to have to ask Rebecca, who's the cellist, how, how she did, how she how went she through all that. that. Yeah, well, it's almost like, you know, you show up and there's this feeling like I'm the act, but then I think as we all discover, it's really so much about the environment and the, you know, the venue and the booking person and or the host or whoever is putting it on in the audience. And it's all kind of combines to make this soup of like experience, you know, and yeah, you just kind of have to flow with it and try and do your best but um you kind of have to check check the expectations at the door huh (laughs) (laughs) well i kind of lived through the years in touring that there are those venues that are well suited for very artistic uh thoughtful kinds of um, selections yeah uh and and that's all well and good but it's not a given because no totally uh, a lot of times especially early in the week you have to take dates that uh, and places that you might not otherwise do because you need to fill those dates. Right, exactly. Uh, otherwise, you're wasting time. You don't want to waste time on the road. And you go to some place, and the first thing you see is a pool table. You know that maybe you better make some adjustments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You change up your set. You, you know, like we said, check your expectations and and make the most of it. Because I mean, yeah, if you can get a, a gig on a Monday night, that's awesome. You know, and it doesn't yeah. it almost doesn't matter what the gig is. It's like if you're making some money on a Monday night, perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's just all part of the. That's all. That's all part of the environment of playing on the road. Yep. Totally. So, how can people learn more about you? Uh, well. I guess first and foremost, they could turn to uh, the website, and the website is uh, Bosco's uh, Brood Music, all one word, Bosco's, B-O-S-C-O-E-S, Brood, B-R-O-O-D, Bosco's Brood Music, mm-hmm. um, at, uh, oh, not at, it's going to www.boscosbrood.com, boscosbroodmusic.com. There you go. And I'll have, I'll have it all written out in the, the, the notes at the end of the podcast so people can, can go there as well to get all of the, the different spellings and stuff. Um, and then you're on Facebook and social media and stuff as well? Yeah, for the most part, I do have a Facebook page, uh, San Vegas Google Bosco's Brood. Uh, and then, I don't know, I'm on a couple of other things. That, you know, these, these uh, sites, they, they vary. I mean, you know, started off on MySpace some years ago, and then that right. changed the reverb nation. And yeah, uh, so I guess the best thing to do is just to Google Bosco's Brood, uh, and it's going to kick up on various places where one could learn more about uh, me and, and the music, and you know, places I'm playing at. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And do you have any closing words or thoughts? Well, I mean, the experiences. Um, they really have been, I think, overall rewarding, even the funny ones. And sometimes even not the not-so-funny ones, it's still been a very rewarding experience to, to play on the road and to engage with other musicians, which is also, I think, part of the experience. It's not just playing yourself, but you meet others that are on the road. And, totally. And you share a, a lot of really good quality time and share, share stories with them. And, uh, and you meet a lot of people. Uh, to me, I think that that is 
uh, as rewarding as playing the music itself. Totally. Yeah. All of the, the community aspect and yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your time and, um, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you soon. All right. So thanks again to Sam from Bosco's Brood and please go check out his music. And now we're going to move into a little theme here of meetings, meeting famous people when you're out there on the road. And both Dan and I have a couple of those stories that were kind of interesting. So the first story I'm going to tell, and this happened about 10 years ago, I was playing a venue close to where I live now, actually, at the time, it was a little further away, but it's um, on the California Central Coast called Don Quixote's. And I was going in there with a Cat Stevens cover band for an evening show, and we showed up and there was another band there. And we thought, well, that's interesting. We didn't see any matinee performance on the calendar, but uh, we were just sort of waiting out back so we could load in when they were done. And we found out it was Peggy Young's band, so Neil Young's wife. At, well, I'm not sure if they're still married anymore, actually. But anyway, there was talk of divorce. So. I'm not quite sure, but they were married at the time. They were married for many years. Um, but anyway, so, so they, were, they were finishing up, and I guess what had happened is uh, they had had a show booked the night before, but the power went out. Uh, it's in the mountains, and you know there's a lot of storms and trees coming down and stuff like that. We've been having a lot of that recently, actually. And uh, anyway, that happened, and they agreed to come back the next day, and everyone who bought tickets could just be led into this matinee show. So they were finishing up and I was chatting with the promoter who had booked that show for them and uh, a couple other folks were hanging around in the back. And then suddenly there's this guy about my, my same height wearing this kind of old hat and kind of, I don't know, not the newest looking clothes and kind of scraggly hair and scraggly beard. And he was, you know, I had my violin strung over my shoulder and he was asking me, he's like, He's like, hey, is that a violin in that case? And I turned and I said, well, yeah, it is. And he said something like, you mean to say you're this pretty and you play violin too or <laughs> something like that. And, um, you know, sort of sort of mildly hitting on me, I suppose. And, uh, and I just sort of laughed. I don't know exactly what I said, but thought it was kind of cute. And um, I think we exchanged a few more sentences um, didn't talk for too very long, and then he kind of went away. And then my friend Mary, who's um, quite a bit older than I am, she's, um, I guess, in her 60s at this point, and, you know, was around back when Neil Young was really big, you know, and, and kind of followed him a lot and, and knew what was up. And she came over to me and she said, that was Neil Young you were just talking to. And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought he was a homeless man. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I guess I did. I mean, you know, there's a lot of these kind of, I, I don't know if they're really homeless, but, you know, kind of like mountain men looking people around and uh, and, and a lot of homeless people, certainly in yeah, Santa like Cruz. He fits right in with Felton, you know, like he's oh, got that yeah. look, you know. Yeah, just sort of like, you know, this dude who's been hanging out in the woods and, and he actually, they say he lives pretty close to here anyway, but, um, you know, I'd never really paid attention to what he looks like. And I think that... Um, book that came out where his face is on the cover is um, Neil I, I don't remember what it was like but um, I you know that raging heavy piece something like that 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 came out a little bit later on so I think if I had seen that book then I probably would have 
recognized him, but I didn't recognize him. And anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, it is funny because around here, everybody <laughs> is a huge Neil Young fan, like including me. So it's just like, and it makes sense that he'd be hanging around at Peggy Young's show probably. But yeah. anyway, I, I thought it was interesting that I was not at all nervous to be talking to this person. And maybe he thought that was cool. You know, I've always thought over the years, like maybe he thought that was really cool to be talking to someone who doesn't know at all who he is and just is treating him just like some normal dude, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. So that's my Neil Young story, and um, now you have a, a Towns Van Zant story. Yeah, I don't know if anybody here knows who Towns Van Zant is, but he was a poet, and um, he was also a very troubled soul. Um, he didn't live too long. He was kind of like almost like another Hank Williams, you know, except he lived to be more like in his 50s. Um, but he died on the same day, I believe, as Hank Williams did, and he's just one of those... Um, songwriters that you know you just you come along once in a blue moon like he's uh, very very highly regarded to a lot of people and has a huge cult following but um i didn't know who he was at all back in 1995 and i was playing this festival called the mariposa folk festival and i'd been booked to play there and i remember like just walking around the grounds and you know i i overheard sometimes the folk festivals what i do is i follow the applause you know like if there's a people screaming applause over somewhere i'll go walk over there and I don't even have a schedule on me I don't look to see who's playing I don't you know I don't look up all that stuff ahead of time so I just follow the magic right Mm -hmm. so anyway I went and I heard all this screaming and yelling and clapping and I thought okay I'm gonna go and have a look and see what that's all about and I got to this uh one stage and I saw there's this guy with a cowboy hat and he looked really old and kind of like all worn out, you know, and he's on there and he looked like he could barely play guitar and people were all cheering and I was just going, well, the guy looks like he's having a hard time, you know, or, but his song was good. I remember liking the song and, uh, which in hindsight, it turned out it was Poncho and Lefty, which is one of his most famous songs that, um, was covered by Emmylou Harris and, uh, Willie Nelson and whatnot. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, I just remember I was, so impressed with that little last verse I heard. I thought, it's really good. So I just went and walking around the grounds and think about it again. And about 25, 30 minutes later, I I could see this guy walking, these two guys walking, and one guy's walking holding up Towns Van Zandt. Mm-hmm. And I found out later, thinking back, that that was Harold Eggers, who was his manager um, and tour manager. But I... I, I didn't know these people at the time. And I just thought, oh, look, there's that guy coming down, you know. Mm-hmm. He's walking right towards me. And I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to go up and introduce myself. And so I did. And I went and I said, hey, uh, great to meet you. I really, really liked your, I just caught the last bit of your song. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, you know, where are you from, you know. And I said, mm-hmm. I'm from Pinawa, Manitoba, close to Winnipeg. And I said, where are you from? And he's like, I'm from Texas. <laughs> and that's my town's impression um and and then he started talking to me and i said so i see you got a performer badge you playing and i'm like yeah i, I played and he's like so he, he asked if i was done you know uh-huh. i said yeah i'm not playing anymore he said oh it's too bad he, he was really nice guy i just thought really sweet man but you know i kept noticing this like huge reek of alcohol off his breath and mm-hmm. and how tired and skinny and frail he was and this guy mm-hmm. standing with him holding him up you know yeah. and I'm like 19 years old at the time or 18 and you know I'd, I'd never really hung out with anyone like that so I just thought okay this guy's pretty interesting and I said you know uh, do you have any records out 
And he says, uh, yeah, I got a couple records out. <laughs> and, you know, it was, I think that's where he started to really see that he, he knew that I didn't know who he was. And then he's, and then I said to him, you know, like, well, I really like that song. I, I heard good luck with your music, you know? And mm-hmm. I, cause I didn't know if he was like, had a record or two out or sure, whatever, you know, he was some older on, guy. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was his big break that day and he who played knows? his first really good gig. And <laughs> so anyway, I shook his hand and. He was really nice. And then, and then about, you know, about a year and a half later, I heard that he died, you know? Yeah. And that's when I realized, I was like, that was the guy I met. I didn't even know his name was Towns, really. I was just like, didn't even register. And then I was like, that's the guy. Mm -hmm. And then I went looking back through like the old program and I, and it said Towns Van Zandt. I'm like, holy man. So I actually met that guy and I've been a huge fan ever since, like Mm -hmm. really big fan of his songwriting and music. Yeah. And actually that same day I met Gordon Lightfoot. Nice. Um, and it's because I was smart enough to see they had a special guest that they weren't mentioning who it was. And I was standing around about 6 p.m. on Sunday at Mariposa. And I, I figured, okay, Gordon Lightfoot pretty much was there at Mariposa at the very first one. Like, he, he pretty much was there when he wasn't famous yet. Mm. And mm-hmm. he'd started, and he used to be in Aurelia, which was really close to where he grew up, early Ontario. And so they, they had this special guest they were announcing for six. And nobody's around the whole entire festival was elsewhere they're probably all at the food court or the drinking court or whatever so i'm standing there right front center stage like i'm waiting you know pretty much right up against the stage knowing they're going to announce him soon sure enough they said ladies and gentlemen for his 35th annual you know mariposa folk festival we'd like to introduce gordon lightfoot (laughs) and i looked around me and i could see hundreds of people running across the field to come and see gordon lightfoot because it was a surprise right they didn't know who it was going to be yeah yeah so i'm standing there and i'm watching him and i'm right watching him as close as you could watch him possibly and um the minute that his show was done i ran backstage and i had a backstage pass of course um, so I just gave him a, a handshake and said, really love your stuff. And he was really nice to me too, but he was really rushed. You know, he was yeah. kind of had his mind elsewhere. So I wasn't able to have a conversation, but it was really nice to meet him that day. So it was like, I met Towns and Gordon Lightfoot all in the same afternoon. Awesome. It was pretty special. So then you have another story. I'm not sure if it happened around that time or a little before or a little after, but when you went down to LA and, um, met some cool folks down there. Yeah, that was after that. About two years later, I was uh, I was being courted by this uh, fellow who was Ron Sexsmith's manager. I think he still is. Um, this guy named Michael Dixon, and he really loved my stuff. And what he wanted was for me to become the commercial Ron Sexsmith. Like mm-hmm. he wanted me to be the the rock, pop rock version of him. And I'd had a CD out at the time called Post Seventy Six, which was just a name I made up and it was me and some session players banging out rock and roll in the studio and it was pretty good record I still like it uh, it's like an EP and um so anyway I I'd had that out for about maybe maybe about a, a six months and then I get this call from this guy you know on the phone and he's from Nashville and I was just sitting there going oh who's this you know his name is Michael Dixon and he's Ron Sexsmith's manager and he works for Facility Records, which is an imprint label to help get artists signed to Columbia Records. Okay. And they give him a certain amount of money, you know, quarterly. And he goes around and finds talent. And this is how the music business used to be, of course. Um, but anyway, he had 25000 bucks to blow. And he wanted to go around and, you know, find a talent 
to develop and and he liked my stuff so he just thought okay um how do you feel about going to los angeles and recording a demo and i'm like sure you know i'm 22 years old <laughs> i had you know I had nothing else to do. I had, you know, pretty much, I was working at a job, which was like a, a call center job, you know, had no life really, except, you know, I really didn't have much going on. So I was really excited and I thought, okay. So they booked me this date and it turned out it was uh, July 4th weekend. And I just thought, okay, that'll be pretty fun. So I'm in Los Angeles. I'm sitting there. I'm staying at this place called the Farmer's Daughter Motel across from the CBS building where The Price is Right is filmed. Okay. And <laughs> I was thinking, this is really cool. All of a sudden, I'm from going from Winnipeg to freaking Hollywood, you know, yeah. Western West Hollywood. So I'm sitting there and going, okay, what am I going to do, you know, with my time? And so I went around to a couple places and I decided to check out a few things. And, and you know, I, was, I went to this one place, you know, that was like a, I guess it was like some kind of convenience store. And I'd heard that wheatgrass is good for you, you know, and this is back <laughs> long before I was a health freak like I am now. And so anyway, I just bought this bottle of wheatgrass and I thought, okay, I'm going to drink this wheatgrass. I didn't okay. know that you're not supposed to drink the whole thing all at one shot. Oh, no. <laughs> so I drank all the wheatgrass, this like little bottle, and I was so sick. I was vomiting profusely for like the whole day. Oh my God. I had a session that next morning and I was just sitting there going, I don't even know how the heck I'm going to do this. Uh, Mike Dixon's assistant, Liz Redwing, had come down and met me. She didn't even know me yet. And here's me like with the freaking puke bag and i'm <laughs> green and God. they're thinking man what have we got ourselves into we got the session book this guy can't we can't change the session dates you know so and then it turned out that the producer of the session was shell Tommy. Mm -hmm. so i was already nervous about that and because well shell Tommy is is a legend you know in um in the recording history of rock and roll like he's the guy that recorded the who uh, okay. they, he recorded my generation. He recorded I Can't Explain. I think he recorded um, the very first demos of the Kinks. Like he recorded okay. like all um, uh, You Really Got Me mm -hmm. and All Day and All of the Night and Tired Away. Like he was like there for all that. And so I was really freaked out because I'm sick as a, a dog and I'm <laughs> supposed to go meet Shell Tommy yeah. and talk about the recording. So Anyway, I show up there and I'm hanging out with Shell Tommy and I'm really, I'm saying, man, I'm so sick. And it turned out that because I, I didn't want to fly with my 12 string, they said, don't worry, we'll rent you a 12 string guitar. Yeah. Forgot to tell them that I'm left-handed. Oh no. And they'd rented me a 12 string Martin guitar. Mm -hmm. Left-handed, nice dreadnought Martin. like Right-handed, you mean? Yeah, right-handed. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, oh no, how am I going to tell these guys? Sorry, man. And it turned out, I don't know why, but they'd spent a lot of money renting it. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the hotel room, motel room, and try to learn how to play this guitar upside down. People these days still, to this day, always run up, run into me and go, how do you play the guitar both ways? Like, how do you do that? And I, I, I didn't remember why, but I, for all these years, but now these days I remember that it was from that weekend okay. where I was in that motel room for like 12 hours straight running through all these chords upside down, making sure I knew how to play them. And so anyway, I wound up in the studio and I met the band. I met the band. It's kind of funny. I didn't even know these people. It's like, hi, nice to meet you. Let's make a record. It's like, okay, I don't know these guys. And there's a drummer and then there was a bass player and a keyboard player. And I thought, you know, I like the drummer. He's okay, but I didn't like his playing. I really didn't like his drumming. Um, he was too, and then the electric guitarist, that's right, this electric guitarist. So the, between the electric guitarist and the drummer, in my head, I'm like, 
bust your soul shell, Tommy. But I would have fired them, you know, because mm-hmm. they were they were like rock and roll hall of fame kind of guitar tone and just really all Too over the top, way or? over the top, like, you know, a bunch of distorted, like screaming leads over my folk songs, really. And I was just like, God, this sucks. <laughs> and then the drummer was just kind of slamming through his session and he wasn't putting any heart into it. He was didn't like his drumming. OK, but then I really liked the organ player and I thought he was the sweetest man. And I'll never forget, you know, he was just a gentle, like a party, you know, a gentle, like excellent energy, just a really great guy to be around. Nice. And he was from England, you know, and I really liked it. It's almost like he was like, like from that, from the, from the old generation of rock musicians mm-hmm. from the seventies okay. or sixties. It's like meeting a guy like that. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm talking to this guy and I'm going, you know, nice, nice to meet you. And he's like. Tommy Ayer, that's his name. And I'm just like, really, really liked his energy and the way he played and all the music he played was amazing. So I made sure that um, many months later when I asked for a remix, (laughs) I mixed out the electric guitar and the drummer. (laughs) I kept the bass player because he was all right. And then I kept Tommy in there and Tommy Ayer. So we redid the demo later as a remix. But um, anyway, really sweet guy. And then I find out later that he actually had recorded the organ part you know the movie, the the little show that came out called The Wonder Years. Oh uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. Joe Cocker's with a little help from my friends. Okay, yeah. He's the guy that played organ on that. Cool. So he was the guy that did a. That was him, and then it turned out he went on the road with uh, Joe Cocker for a long time. Uh, he had he knew a guy named Jerry Rafferty who put out a huge album in nineteen seventy nine called Station C- uh, City to C- City to City I think it's called and it was like. Uh, Baker Street was mm. anyway he was in that band and um, I, I think that was the greatest thing in the world you know to be playing with this like essentially a legend uh, you know a British organ legend you know yeah. and then he you know to take it even further after the session was done he's like you know what I think that my wife would really like to play on this album and I just said oh okay cool I mean what does she play and he's like oh she plays she plays violin I said, okay, I'm used to hearing about fiddlers, but where I'm from, but violin, I'm thinking, well, that's pretty special. And, you know, he didn't really mention her name at that point. He just said, yeah, you might have heard of her before. She's done a lot of session work in her life. And, um, you know, her name is Scarlett. And, you know, I'm looking forward to introducing you to her. So I said, okay. So the next day she comes in and she was like starstruck. She was such a nice woman. She was like totally like, blown away here i am in the studio wow so nice to meet you i'm like what a humble woman uh-huh. and she's the woman that recorded on desire by bob dylan she recorded on hurricane she recorded on that whole album all the fiddle you yeah. hear on that dylan album is her and i didn't even know her uh or expect her to be that humble and that kind and that blown away that she was in the studio recording and i'm just like this is amazing i don't know her story but she's a really special lady and so anyway she laid down some of the most beautiful like like when you listen to her just playing in the room you almost start crying you know she's like incredible musician so it was tommy era scarlett rivera and uh shell tommy so yeah that was like a pretty special crew of folks that i got to work with there and the wheatgrass you finally got that, ungreened from that, the wheatgrass. that was out of my system already thankfully <laughs> okay. but yeah and then here's me playing tall string upside down you know, trying to figure out my songs in the studio. And that, that turned out well, too, so thankfully, you know. Yeah, again, I guess, you know, just 
the unexpected and having to kind of um, get up there and do your best. Yeah. No matter what's going on. Um, we're going to move into a little theme section here of transportation and the elements. Kind of grouping those together because oftentimes they go together. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to start off telling a story here that happened, uh, I think, again, about 10, actually probably more like 12 years ago now. And my friend David Pavlovich is a really awesome harp player, and uh, he's from California. I'm not sure if he's from California originally, but he lived here, and that's where I met him um, at the time. And then he had moved down to Arizona, bought a house, and was setting up a new life for himself. And he was working on a new album and wanted to fly me down there and have me record on it. So I thought, well, that sounds cool. And, you know, I think it was May, and so it wasn't too hot yet, and flew down there and his friend Harry who was this really cool sort of educator and um, radio host I ended up being on his radio show while, we, while I was down there and um, he picked me up at the airport I believe I was flying into Tucson and David was living at the time in Bisbee Arizona which is four miles from the Mexico border so it was a really interesting drive down with Harry kind of learning about the area and he was showing me this one place where he said, you know, you can you can see the, you know, the the folks from Mexico, the illegal immigrants crossing like right here, sometimes, and um, you know, in, in the middle of the night and stuff. I was like, wow, this is really kind of an interesting, different place that I'm going to. So the recording session went well. Everything was fine about the visit, and then it came time to take me back to the airport, and. Harry wasn't available and uh, David was going to take me back, but he said, you know, you'll have to drive my car, which is a, a stick shift. Um, basically what had happened is he had turned the back seat and the passenger seat into this harp ramp, basically a bed for his harp. And it was a tiny car and there was only, you know, that one seat, the driver's seat to sit in. And so he said, well, I can, I can lay on the harp ramp and you can drive. Well, I had never driven a stick shift before except for one very failed attempt to drive my, gran my grandpa's truck and that was such a failure, I just never tried again. And I certainly wasn't about to learn how to drive a stick shift that day. It was probably about a two, two to three hour drive and um, I said, yeah, no, that's not gonna work. And, and he said, well, I hate to have you lay on the harp ramp the whole time. And, and I said, yeah, I mean, doesn't seem like the, the safest thing in the world. And um, so then we figured out this idea where he could take out the harp ramp and we would put this lawn chair that he had in for the passenger seat. So, you know, this lawn chair is there and my stuff's in the back and we take off. And I think we'd put a couple bricks down um, at the bottom to try and like hold the lawn chair in place, which was really stupid to think back to it. I mean, if we'd actually gotten into an accident or something, probably a brick would have hit us in the head and definitely wasn't tying anything down. But at one point along the journey there from Bisbee to Tucson, I was realizing that I was going 65 miles an hour in a lawn chair. <laughs> and that was just pretty ridiculous. And my boyfriend at the time, I I think I got back and I told him the story and just the, the petrified look on his face. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to let you go anywhere by yourself ever again. <laughs> so yeah, 65 miles an hour in a lawn chair. 
Next, we're going to go to a story from a friend of mine named Toby Gray. He's a local musician uh, from where, where I'm from here on the California Central Coast. And he's going to tell a little story um, way back when. He's toured for many, many, many years with all sorts of different bands and stuff and has his own original music and all sorts of different things going on. So um, definitely check out Toby Gray. He'll give you his information at the end of his short story here. And enjoy. Hi, Toby Gray, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. How's it going? It's going great, Laurel. It's uh, good to hear from you. Yeah, and uh, so I hear you have a tour story. You want to share it with us? I, I've got a lot of tour stories, but I, I've got one that I uh, thought would might be of interest to you. Uh, um, I know you and Dan have been up in the great north here a while, and this story goes back to the uh, early 70s when I was with a band based out of uh, Los Angeles. And uh, we were touring quite a bit, and uh, we, were, we would take very long drives between gigs. And this particular was a, a, a from L.A. to Denver, up to Winnipeg, and then over to Seattle. And so, and it was during January, of course. Mm-hmm. And the band vehicle we had, uh, we had a truck for the equipment, and then another vehicle for uh, for the people who wanted to drive in a car, but. The van, the van had a van that was an old Dodge. Um, well, it actually was new at the time, but it was a, a, a Southern California van, you know, with the moon roof and the uh, <laughs> side plastic windows. And, and this was before seatbelts. You know, so it had like two long benches in the back, and it was all carpeted. It was, it was kind of plush. It was fun to travel in. But the problem was, as we got going, you know, we were fine, you know, going from L.A. up to Denver and, uh, everyone's pretty comfortable, but that, as we started heading north into Minnesota and going up in towards Winnipeg, the temperature got to be really, really cold. It was like you know five degrees outside, and we're busting along at about 80 miles an hour, 78 miles an hour. So the wind chill had to be you know way below zero, and this van could not keep up the heat. You know we had the heat on wide open, and it was below freezing inside this truck. And we're all sitting there, just shivering. And when we got out, put our coats on, put you know two pair of pants on, everything. We get going. We're still freezing. And oh, so we pulled we pulled over in a little town, and uh, we're like, "What are we going to do here?" So, you know, being musicians, everyone kind of took their own tacks to the whole thing. The keyboard player went in and bought a uh, a down sleeping bag, and uh, well, the guy who was driving went in and bought a White a snowmobile suit. This is I don't know if you see those. This is like something you wander to the Arctic with. Okay. And uh, and I forget what I got. I think I just got that an extra coat or some long johns. And we proceeded on, but we're still suffering with this thing. And so you know, a couple hours later, we stopped, and then the the manager went in and bought a, a Coleman catalytic heater. And these are probably the last thing you're supposed to fire off inside a van. But we brought this thing out. It was a, it was a good size thing. The, the ball on the thing was about the size of a basketball. We filled this thing with fuel, okay. fired it off inside the van, and suddenly it's like being at the beach again. You know? <laughs> and we actually had to open open the vents and the uh, the moon uh, uh, roof on this thing to let to let the heat out. But uh, it was just one of those wacky things. You're kind of going, man, um, you know, this is no one would ever believe this if you told them, but. Uh, there we were, uh, just uh, you know, with snowmobile suits on, and, and uh, <laughs> just trying to trying to keep warm in the great north. And I, I know you, you, you and Dan were up there uh, uh, 
not that long ago, and uh, you probably can relate to how cold it can get. Definitely. Uh, but, but we were unused to it, you know, basically, you know, California kids, and, uh, uh, you know, suddenly it was like, Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, and, you know, less, you know, uh, don't, don't take cars that were made in Southern California up into the Great Northwest without some uh, of the Great North Canada, too, uh, unless it's been properly set up for you. So anyway, that's my little story. Awesome. And, Thank you uh, so much for sharing. And uh, it's been fun talking to you. Yeah. Um, tell people, us your, you come, yeah, tell us your links or how, how can people find yeah. you? Um, you? You can search me, uh, Toby Gray, T-O-B-Y-G-R-A-Y, out on the World Wide Web. And my uh, website is highwaybuddha.com, and that's all spelled out. So um, come out and visit, check out my music if you like, and uh, Laurel, it's great talking to you. And uh, Yeah, it's great you talking have, to you. Uh, great holidays here. Yeah, thank you, know, you so much. All right, sounds Hope good. You know. Yep. So again, thanks to Toby Gray for joining us, and please check out his music. So we're going to move on to a story that Dan and I experienced together. When was this? This would have been back in the uh, middle of winter. In, oh, early, I think it was very early 2014, yeah. just around the new year. Yeah, it was on our way when we were driving uh, west from Winnipeg and we wanted to move to BC, southeast BC. There's this little spot called the Kootenays and um, we had a cabin rented there. So we're on our way. Yeah, we had rented this cabin. We were going to hang out there for a couple months and, and make a new album. And it was just a real kind of bad winter and it continued i remember people saying um you know it was just End a horrible 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 winter and at that point we'd been sort of waiting to time ourselves so we could get across the prairies and out to british columbia where it was supposedly going to be more mild and uh, we took our chances and we were driving across saskatchewan and heading into swift current and we thought we just need to stop here for the night and we found a motel, parked the car, and the car says minus 52. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, oh my goodness, what have we got ourselves into? We, we were in a town called Swift Current, Saskatchewan, and Swift Current was, well, it was all frozen over for sure. There were no currents going on. <laughs> no. And um, we were trying to get everything out of the car because anything that was left would be frozen. And we ended up... I think there was like a bottle of shampoo or something that was left in there and that was completely frozen solid. We had some cans of food. They were completely frozen solid. So anyway, we we're trying to unload everything. And at one point, something rolled underneath the car and I made the mistake of taking my gloves off, one of my gloves off for a moment to reach under there and just have some more dexterity. And the intense pain within just moments being in, in the elements. And I basically had to abandon Dan and just run inside. <laughs> it felt like my nails were being ripped out of my flesh. And, you know, I was standing in there and there was sort of like sort of a heater right by this little, like little foyer area. And I was standing there, you know, rubbing my hands together over the heater and just thinking like, this is the most horrible <laughs> experience I've ever had in my whole life I can't believe this is happening but we got everything out and you know we neither of us got frostbite 
and uh, we survived that. But yeah, minus 52. And that's that's Celsius, or is that Fahrenheit too? I mean, at, at minus 40, they, they combine. Yeah, so they, ma they match, I don't they know match at they, minus 40, and then it goes beyond that. I don't so know what happens beyond my that. My guess is it was probably actually more like minus 70 Fahrenheit or something like that, because it would have been... <laughs> it's just like ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it, and, and it was one of those things where I didn't think... I mean, I'm from Winnipeg area, and I, I'd never experienced that kind of cold, like minus... 35 minus 40 is pretty common in the dead of January, you know, for like at least two, three weeks. But then, you know, like this whole minus 55, that, that's taken it a step further. This is at a point where if you're outside in that kind of temperature, um, you're imminently aware of uh, that you could die if you're out there. Yeah, for, like you feel like like death is hovering over you pretty yeah. much <laughs> you have to make quick you have to move quickly because you're gonna have frostbite if you get locked um, out of your house or something like you're toast if you're if your hand i mean if you're any kind of flesh is showing on your body it's just gonna turn into frostbite and it really really stings it's like getting bitten by something and um it's just one of those things where uh, you know what happened was we we managed to get all of our stuff out of the car and we put it on this dolly and it's oh, like an right. airport dolly type of thing or, or hotel dolly. And then the stupid thing had a broken wheel. It like didn't, it wouldn't turn and it's icy. It's completely yeah. icy. It was icy to a point where, you know, we're slipping around, you know, just trying to walk from the car to this thing. And then we're trying to move the dolly on slippery ice with and a I broken that's, wheel. that's why the thing fell underneath the car because yeah. it fell off the dolly and... It was just a mess. And, and, and when we got into the place, um, I went and asked the lady, uh, and this is important. I don't know if, how many people here know about the cold winters, but I went and asked the lady inside. I said, you know, do you have some extra three-prong, you know, extension cord or something? And she said, yeah, we do. And I said, so grateful because they had an outlet there. So I was able to plug my car in overnight. And that's right. something that you do in Canada. You plug your car in. Minus 55, it wouldn't have started. And and what it is, it's basically a block heater that heats up the oil pan, keeps the car, you know, fluids somewhat warm overnight so it can actually start. So it was the coldest experience. <laughs> that, and the best part was Laurel here didn't complain. I complained. I just she didn't abandoned complain. you. But <laughs> she didn't complain much. She wasn't all like whining and all that. So that's a big part of why I said, man, I just want to be with this person because she doesn't even... She doesn't whine in those circumstances. <laughs> There's know? not really time to whine. Like you just, it's, it's like, here I am and I need to get over there as fast as possible. <laughs> we are doing this <laughs> yeah. as most efficiently as possible right now. Anyway, so that's the coldest that I've certainly been. Dan's got a couple stories about being super hot. Oh yeah. And not in like a cool way. Just it was hot. Uh, <laughs> summer of 2006. I had a tour. Uh, where I had to go down to Bismarck. And I was the token folk singer at this bluegrass festival. They had me slated at 2.30 or 3 p.m. It was called the Bismarck Bluegrass Festival. And I, I remember I got, um, you know, some... Like back then, there wasn't any internet for me, really. I wasn't really on the net much. And I didn't know what temperature it was going to be when I was getting down there. I had no idea. So I just started driving. And back then, you know, my car, I had a Toyota Echo that was made in 2000 and three I guess it was like a gray Toyota Echo nice little car and it, it didn't have any air conditioning you know so I think it was kind of a hot day to begin with but I left really early in the morning like around maybe 9 a.m and you know it's going to be about maybe 
you know, a nice cool temperature in the morning. So I got over the border and uh, that's another story I guess I'll tell. <laughs> uh, not yet, but so anyway, I got there at the border and I went over the border and I drove down into North Dakota and all of a sudden I'm, you know, it's around maybe 10 a.m. and I'm supposed to get there for about maybe two o'clock, you know. So I still had a few hours to go and I was noticing it was getting really hot, you know. Hmm. It's like, wow, it's a really warm day. So I had my windows rolled down and my traveling companion and I were, we stopped somewhere to buy a whole bunch of water. Yep. So we bought like a case of 24 little bottles of water and we went through a lot of those. We were drinking like crazy. And you know, it's really hot when you're drinking tons of those water bottles and you don't have to go pee. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it was like all coming out of our pores and we're just sweating like crazy. And then all of a sudden, um, we get to the festival and the guy says, uh, there's still people here. <laughs> and I was Barely. like, okay. I got out of my car and I'm going like, whoa, it's like, it was insane. I think it was something like in Celsius, it was like 44 Celsius that day. It was like a hundred and... I think it was like 127 or something. It was Whoa. a really hot day. The hottest day in the history of Bismarck. <laughs> it was like the hottest day of all time. And so I'm standing there going, wow. And they want me to play a folk set at, you know, and the show must go on. They're paying me a thousand bucks, right? I'm not going to say forget it. So anyway, I just said, okay. And I went and played. And I'll never forget <laughs> everyone in the audience. A lot of them were older people, like yeah. 70, 75-year-old people, 60, 70. And they're all, they all have like umbrellas mm -hmm. over their heads, you know, and they're really hot and they're fanning themselves and they're in the shade. They actually had some shade. I was standing on a stage with no shade. I was like <laughs> right in the middle of the yeah. hot sun. And I'll never forget the people after the song, you know, when the song, they would be clapping so slowly. Like <laughs> they're almost like at a standstill. Like almost all the molecules in the whole world had almost stopped. Like it, it was so hot. <laughs> People couldn't even go up. And I was playing my songs at like about half speed. <laughs> it was like a really funny gig. Oh, man. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that one. So, yeah, let's move into this borders, border crossings. Well, I should go back to just, you know, shortly before that when I was at the border to get there. And I showed up at the border and the border guard, you know, I was, it was early in the morning, you know, and the guy was there and it was just me and him you know and I thought okay this should be either really quick or really long I don't know what it's going to be and um he just looked at me and he says so uh, what you got in the back seat and I said I got a guitar <laughs> he's like kind of shaking his head he's like yeah what what make and I said it's a it's a Martin and he's like what model <laughs> and I said oh it's a d28 and then he's like kind of looking at me and, you know, time's slowing down. You're like, why does this guy want to know all and, this information? And then he's like sitting there going, okay, so what, what model is it? And I said, whoa, this is, and I'm starting to get nervous that there's maybe a stolen Martin, okay. you know, out there and maybe they're looking and they're going to like open my case and have a big drama at the border. So anyway, I just said it's a D28. And then he said, what year? And this was when I got really freaked out because I'm just like, oh, God, this, I don't know. I said, it's uh, 2006. And uh, he looked at me and then he says, uh, mine's a 74. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, whew. And then, and he said, 
<laughs> then he starts telling me, he's like, what kind of music you play? And I'm just like, it's like 6.30 in the morning and I'm standing there at the border. And I'm going, uh, yeah, I play bluegrass and folk and blues and, you know, finger picking and whatnot. And he's like, oh, I love that stuff. And do you ever listen to Old and In The Way? And I'm like, yeah, I love that band. We're talking about, you know, Jerry Garcia and Vassar yeah. Clements and Peter Rowan at the border at this guy and it turned out he's a really nice guy and we had a like we actually I stayed there talking to him for like 10-15 minutes nice. about bluegrass so that was a good experience awesome so then I guess shortly after the minus 52 in swift currents story uh, we were crossing a border we had gotten ourselves out to British Columbia and then we had a show down in Idaho so we crossed the border and Dan had a work permit in the States at the time, and that was all cool. No problems there. Um, coming back, at that point, I was on a tourist visa because we'd kind of finished up our tour, and we were going to be waiting for about another month and a half or so to get the next tour started. And I was working with the Musicians Union of Canada to try and get a new visa, but they had changed so many of the rules, and there was all this everything was kind of up in the air as far as when this visa was going to come through. And I needed about twice as much paperwork as I had before, just, you know, even just a few months before when I had applied for a previous visa. And so trying to get back into British Columbia was, um, was quite the scene. And um, basically the border guards there didn't believe anything that I said. And they thought it was very suspicious that, someone who had previously entered Canada as a work permit holder with a violin was now trying to enter as a tourist with a violin. And it kind of came down to this violin being this huge problem as this tool of the trade, right? And I was trying to explain how, you know, whether or not I'm performing, I still practice every day and I'm, I'm still going to have my violin with me. I'm not going to come up to Canada for, you know, a few months and not have my violin with me. And we were going to be making an album, and I don't think I told them any anything of that, but they probably would have thought that was a big red flag. And um, in any case, they ended up taking it way over the top. And after a four and a half hour interrogation, where Dan was just sitting in the car the whole time, pretty <laughs> much, uh, he had no idea what was going on. <laughs> they had, I think it was for the first two or so hours. Yeah, at, at least for two hours, and they had me under this really cold vent, and it was again winter. It was January. And they had me under this cold vent. And when I get nervous, I've found that I, I tend to just start shivering anyway. <laughs> but then I'm under this really cold, like, air conditioning vent. I don't know if that was planned. And then they're doing this good cop, bad cop scene to me where one guy is just, you know, bulletproof vest, really tall, really kind of mean-looking face. And then this other guy is just kind of, you know, this shorter guy with just sort of this, like, ha-ha, happy-go-lucky character, and they're working together, you know, looking back at, this, at the situation. They're totally working together throughout the whole interrogation to get as much information out of me as possible. They printed out my whole website. They had just, they had a file. They, they made a file on me at the border, and it was incredibly intense as someone who's always trying to do everything very by the books and, you know, you know, so many musicians who are just like, ah, oh, just 
tell him you're doing this or doing that. Don't worry about, you know, all the government stuff, you know, and I'm like, no, I want to do this all right. I want to make sure, you know, I'm all my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed. And still in the end, I was end up, you know, getting banned from Canada for a year. And, uh, anyway, what was really funny was <laughs> when I got called into the building and I'm sitting there next to her yeah. and, you know, and we're both like, we hadn't eaten in however many hours and we're both really tired. And, you know, they didn't, it's just like, at one point they finally offered us a glass of water, like a paper cup of water. And it's like, Oh my God. But then I remember watching like other people crossing the border, like coming to the border while we were sort of in this lockdown interrogation scene. And I remember there was this one car that came through and there was like a, a puppy in the car, you know, in the passenger seat. And, the, and there's this couple and they're like, oh, yeah, we went down to the States and we got our puppy. And the guy at the border is all like, oh, isn't that so cute? Isn't that nice? Have a nice day, you know? Yeah. And I'm Just thinking like dog through. They didn't ask about or, papers or shots or anything, you know, and that seemed really suspicious to me. And. Um, anyway, so we were turned around and it was funny. They, they said, you know, at the end, Dan, I think you, you asked, you're like, you're like, well, what does this mean exactly? And they're like, well, you can proceed into Canada, but she can't. Yeah. It's like, well, what? She's just going to stay here, like at the border. <laughs> so what wound up happening was this is after four and a half hours as I, uh, you know, Laurel and I basically got in the car and just drove and turned around right at the border. And then here I am at the American border. Right. About so it's five not. Seconds later. And what I kind of realized through that situation was, you know, it's not one border. Like you have to go through both of them. And, and that had been a problem that they had brought up where I hadn't returned a paper to the Canadian border when I'd crossed into the American border. And I'm like, I didn't know there were two borders. Like, you know, I guess, you know, you take one little road and you're at one and then you take another little road and you're at the other one, but you just think you're going down the road. So, so that border guard was asking, we're so, at the American border. <laughs> yeah. So now he, this border guard is saying, so trapped between the borders, basically. <laughs> so he was just looking at me and going, so uh, what's, what's your purpose, uh, business or pleasure and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to give any kind of vibe off really usually, but that time I, he picked up on my vibe pretty quickly Yeah. because here's this woman, you know, that I love playing music with and all this stuff. And now she's banned from my country and I can't even see her probably for a long time. It just ruined like a lot of, you know, our momentum. And then I, I just gave the guy the, this look and he actually just gave me my passport back and said, okay, because he knew, I think he probably figured out that you'd been banned and that I had to drive you back to the airport. So I drove you to the, Spokane Airport dropped you off, then went Fastest back. Fastest ticket I'd ever booked in my life. Then went back <laughs> up north, really upset. It was like a two-hour drive or whatever to get to the border, um, to go up into to go to our cabin because I had to go there and see what the heck I was going to do. You know, am I going to stay in the Kootenays on my own in the six hundred dollar a month cabin that I can't afford anymore? Am I going to move all the stuff back? Anyway, I had to send a little stuff back to her. But before that, what happened was I got to the border and it was really just another one of these guys at the border, you know, and it's just all in a big huff and looking around my car. And he's like, OK, pull over there and I move. I had to put my car over and put it in the little garage there. And then he says, we believe we found a controlled substance in your vehicle. And I'm freaking out. You know, yeah. I'm going From like this, this has been <laughs> the worst 24 hours of my life. Right. And so anyway, I'm just sitting there going, okay, what the heck is going on? I'm trying to think back and going, 
I don't ever remember giving anyone a ride. I'm trying to think back and go, I have no idea what they're talking about. So you don't do any of those drugs. Yeah. And I don't do them and I don't hang out with folks that much to do them. Anyway, it's just not my world. You know, I don't, I don't live that world. Um, drugs are not in my world. So anyway, I just had this, you know, kind of freaking, freaking out inside. And then I'm starting to think about this one story I was told about how sometimes when people go down to the States and they're in a parking lot and they have Canadian plates on their car, they'll get drugs planted under their car by somebody, I don't know, it's like some underground drug scene or whatever. And then Canadians will drive their car back over the border. And then for some reason, they'll get the drugs intercepted somehow. I don't right. know. It's like a, a, I, a chain of different, you know, drug trafficking people. And yeah, so actually, we just heard about that story when we yeah. were in Idaho playing that show. So it was just like all so, happening so quickly. <laughs> so anyway, I was like thinking to myself that this is likely that that might be the case. And then in that case, I'm Laurel and I are You're done. You're probably banned from the state. Yeah, so now we're, we're finished. <laughs> we're finished. And now what, what I'm going to do then, right? And I, I meet I, up in meet Thailand up in or Thailand something. Thailand for a tour. <laughs> so anyway, it turned out that, and of course they didn't apologize, you know. But it turned out that it wasn't a controlled substance, and. The guy came in after about 10 minutes and I'm sitting there, you know, completely freaked out. And he says, all right, you can go. And he gives me my passport. And so and he wasn't going to explain, right? Mm-hmm. So I just pressed him. I said, like, what was it? He says, well, it turned out that uh, it was cedar leaves. <laughs> so what happened was, you know, on walks, I'd go on walks and I love the smell of cedar. Like I like to prick a cedar leaf off a cedar tree and then, you know, rub it between my fingers and smell the leaf, you know, it's like nice smell, you know. So anyway, I had a bit of that in between the, the passenger like and driver's seat. Like a natural seat. car air freshener. Just, well, yeah, just sit. No, it was just a couple little leaves from some walk I'd taken and the leaves had dried and it was still there. I hadn't vacuumed my car or whatever. Yeah. So that kind of really big time heart attack right there, you know? Yeah, totally. God. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to call it a podcast and make a part two here because we're only halfway through our stories and halfway through our guests. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. And next week, I'm going to have part two. Um, I'd especially like to thank, of course, Dan Frechette for joining us. And tell us how people can find you. Well, we have a website, uh, danandlaurel.ca. And that's because uh, someone who has .com, danandlaurel.com, is still being held hostage. Uh, (laughs) We can't buy the domain for some reason, but it's .ca. Um, And also, my own website is ramblingdan.com. If you want to look up uh, my music, I got 25 albums on Bandcamp or actually more than that. And I'm selling them all at a discount right now. So you can actually download a lot of my music for a small token of appreciation for all of my lifetime of work. And uh, (laughs) anyway, so I highly recommend, especially Lucky Day is an amazing album. If you like blues, he has a blues record, a bluegrass record as well. I really like one that you never really got to officially release um, and promote, but it's called Going All the Way. It's kind of like a rockabilly record. A 50s um, kind of sounding record. Of course, our records I really like, and we're coming out with a new one really soon. Yay. We have, yeah, we have the tracks recorded just as of this um, last week here. So. We still don't know what to call it, but it's our third album. Yeah, we're going to release it in, um, in the spring, so we're happy about that. And I'd like to thank our guests today, Sam from Bosco's Brood and Toby Gray. And please check out their websites. 
I'll have those in the show notes. And if you're a violinist or violist or possibly even cellist or bassist, and you're interested in enrolling in my Complete Vibrato Mastery online video course, there are still some spots available with the coupon code VIOLINGEEKPODCAST2015. So you can go there and just type in that code and you'll get a nice discount to enroll in a lifetime membership of the course and within three to six months learn how to do a really nice variable all-around vibrato. So that is um, kind of my my new newest venture and you can go to completevibratomastery.com to learn more about the course and um, buy it and read reviews and all sorts of things like that. I believe you can also even kind of test drive the course um, for I think they give you like a, a few minute long, just kind of get into the course and go look around things. So, um, so that's possible too. You can just kind of see what it's all about. There's a YouTube video there at the site that kind of breaks down a little bit about what we're going to be covering. And a couple of podcast episodes ago, I talked more about it. So if you didn't listen to that, you can go back and check it out. But um, again, the coupon code is Geek. 2015 and that's a nice discount for you to learn a really awesome skill that I know is really challenging and there's not a lot of great education out there for it so hopefully this will work for you my website for touring and my CDs and my Skype teaching and in-person teaching and all of that kind of stuff is laurelthompson.com that's l-a-u-r-e-l-t-h-o-m-s-e-n And if you have any comments, questions, or maybe some suggestions for new podcast topics you'd like to hear about this year, then you can send me an email at laurel at laurelthompson.com. So laurel at laurelthompson.com. Again, L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. I hope you enjoyed this tour stories podcast and... I'm really looking forward to sharing the rest of the stories and guests with you. And I'm sorry they didn't all fit into this one, but we're already going pretty far over time here. So I hope you really uh, hung in there and enjoyed every moment of it. And we'll see you next week with part two. Until then, happy practicing.